Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 30 to 33 this morning as we wrap up this mini-series that we have been looking at in the month of May and praying for our community and particularly focusing on uh, Scripture's call for us to be praying for the advancement of the gospel. In particular, over the last couple of weeks as we've been looking at this, been focusing on the aspect of God's calling for us to be praying for our community and seeing from Scripture that, yes, indeed, that prayer is God's appointed means, His principal appointed means for bringing about His kingdom in this place, that the prayers of the people are would affect that and bring that into reality. Here this morning, what we're focusing on is a different aspect of that same idea, which is as we are praying for our community and praying for the gospel to advance in our community, here looking at Scripture, and particularly Paul's prayer, for how he encouraged the churches to pray for the messengers of the gospel. An encouragement for you this morning that you would pray for the messengers of the gospel here in this community and those that are connected in your life. Next week we'll be returning to our expositional series through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. We'll be starting with Second Thessalonians, which will continue for into, uh, into the midsummer as we go, return to that series next week. Now, let us turn our attention to Romans chapter 15, where Paul, writing to the church in Rome, a church that he hasn't met, Paul writes this to them. He's been describing his plans about what he, how he intends to go to them in Rome and visit them, and he hopes that he will be refreshed there and that they will financially support him so that he can bring the gospel to Spain. But first, he tells them that he needs to go to Jerusalem to deliver the collection of money that he has gathered together from the churches in Asia Minor in order to give it to the needy believers in Jerusalem. At the end of the letter, Paul writes this to the church in Rome. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service For Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your spirit here to open our hearts to your word and to impress this truth upon our hearts, that your gospel may advance the forces of evil may be pushed back, that the name of Jesus would be honored and praised. Lord, do that work at this time, we pray. Amen. Something that I've been recently challenged by is that I realize that as your pastor, that I have not asked for you to pray for me enough. And when I say pray for me, I don't just mean me personally, though I certainly fit in that category, but praying for our staff, praying for our elders, praying for our ministry leaders, praying for our deacons. And I haven't asked you to pray for me enough. There are two things that really helped me realize this more recently. One of them is what we'll see here in Romans about how frequently the Apostle Paul asks churches, in almost every letter of the New Testament that he writes, how he asks churches and Christians to pray for him. And secondly, experientially, something that happened in our own midst here is that several weeks ago, as we were beginning the series in 1 Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul describes 
his struggle with the devil. How he had longed to see the church and the Christians in Thessalonica and return to them. But he says but that he was thwarted by the devil. And that he also fears for them that the devil has tempted them and that his work there was in vain. And he is reflecting upon the spiritual battle and the reality of the devil and his forces and his minions in this world. And Paul is very aware of the spiritual battle that is going on and that he is engaged in. And I asked in our community groups what question of where do you see this spiritual battle taking place in your own life, in our church, and in our community? And to a bit of my surprise, not completely my surprise, but to a bit of my surprise, the conversation in our own community group, and then as I talked to other community group leaders, most of them, almost every community group leader said the conversation was pretty much the same in their group as well. And the question came in terms of where do you see this spiritual battle being waged in your life and in our church right now? Most people, most of you, responded by saying, I don't really feel like there is one. I know that this is going on. I know that Scripture tells me that there is a spiritual battle being waged. But, you know, when I look at my life, you know, things are going pretty well. Yeah, we've got to struggle here. We've got to struggle there. But is this engaged in some type of spiritual warfare? Is there some type of spiritual battle that's going on in our midst? Is that, am I engaged in that? Am I aware of that? Most people said, yeah, I just, it just doesn't feel like that. And I realized through that that... Um, you know, the experience, I would say, on this side is completely different. Because I know for myself, for those on our staff here at Cornerstone, for our elders and our ministry leaders, that there is a perpetual and consistent weight of this battle going on. I think very, I am very confident that if you asked any of our staff members, any of our elders, that every one of, you would, every one of them would say, that they are absolutely engaged in a spiritual battle and the battle weighs on them and exhausts them physically and emotionally and spiritually almost every day. And so through both that experience and also what Paul, Paul's uh, writings here, and I do need to give credit to D.A. Carson for his insights into the life of Paul on this, just became convinced that I just have not asked you not just to pray, but specifically to pray for me enough. And so that's what we're going to look at here this morning in Romans 15, is Paul requesting prayer for himself and prayer for the ministry of the gospel. We're going to look at six things. We're going to look at two whys Paul asked them to pray, two whats in terms of what he asked them to pray for, and two hows and what to expect in prayer. The first one is this, is that I ask you to pray for me because of God's grace that has been given to you. Paul begins by stating this to them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. And then he continues asking them to pray for him. He says, I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. He is saying, I appeal to you because of God's grace that has been given to you. And he says, I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul includes those three phrases not as a referent to the person, not as a personal identifier of the man by the name of Jesus, but he uses those three terms as a very strong and profound theological statement that should invoke a response within us. I appeal to you by our Lord that he is the God of the universe, 
the creator of all, the sustainer of life, the one for whom everything came into being by his will and by his word, the one who from before the foundation of the world and now so to today and into the future is working his eternal plan. Our Lord, the one by whom and before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is indeed the Lord of the universe. And Paul says, I appeal to you by our Lord, And by our Lord Jesus. And the reason why he was named Jesus, Scripture tells us, is because he shall save his people from their sins. That each one of us has done things and said things and thought things that we ought not to have done, said, or thought, and failed to do the things that we ought to have done, said, and thought. And as such, each one of us stands guilty before God, having broken his law, and that there is a just punishment due to us for our sins. But praise God for Jesus, who saves his people from their sins through his death on the cross, that our guilt and shame is taken away, is paid for by him, and instead there is dignity and righteousness that is bestowed upon us, and we are forgiven and adopted as children of God. He is Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins. And Paul says, I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus, and finally Christ that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited promised one, who is the one who will reconcile all things to himself, whether on heaven or on earth, by his blood that is shed on the cross, that he is the one who is the fulfillment of God's plan and God's purposes. He is the one who will bring redemption into this world. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He says, I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the love of the Spirit, the Spirit who is the one who applies God's love in our life, who makes that known in our life, the love of God being experienced by us that comes through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that he is the one who makes us aware of God's love to experience God's love and to give that love back to God and also to one another. And so Paul is asking them to pray for them, pray for him because of the grace that they have experienced and the grace that has been given to them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul's point in basing his request for prayer on the grace of God is this. He's saying, listen, if you truly confess Jesus Christ as your Messiah, if you really believe that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, If you really believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who is the long-awaited fulfillment of the promises of God, then, of course, you will pray for me. If you long for this kingdom to spread, for the gospel to advance, for people to be nurtured and disciples, then pray for me. If you know of anything of the love of the Spirit, the love that fills and empowers, empowers us, then demonstrate that love by interceding on my behalf. If you have tasted the blessings of the gospel, then surely you will pray for me. Here specifically, if you belong to Jesus and you have experienced the love of his spirit working through you, then surely and gladly, then you will pray for me. Pray for me because of the grace that has been given to you. But secondly, the second why is this. Pray for me because I need your prayers. Paul states this to the church 
in Romans by saying to them, I urge you, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And he earnestly beseeches them to pray on his behalf. And in fact, in almost every letter of the New Testament that Paul writes, he asks people to pray for him. Listen to some of the ways that he does so. In Ephesians chapter 6, this passage that is known in particular for the armor of God, put on the full armor of God, it begins like this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And it continues describing what the whole armor of God is that many of you are familiar with. And then he says, take up the whole armor of God. Same thought continuing. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We're in a spiritual battle. Put on the whole armor of God. How do you do so? Pray at all times in the Spirit. And pray for me that I may declare it boldly. I never thought of the Apostle Paul as one that struggled with timidity. That's just not the picture of him that I have in my mind. But his most frequent prayer request is that he asked people to pray for him, that he would speak the word boldly. Apparently, Paul struggled at times, as I can easily relate to, of judging whether or not to speak by the circumstances that he is in. And whether or not to state something or not to state something. And Paul was praying for boldness in doing so. Not only there, but in First Thess- Second Thessalonians, as we'll see in a couple weeks, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. And Paul understands that it is the prayers of his people And the prayers of the churches that are the means by which he is able to be effective and for the gospel ministry to advance. He needs your prayers. I need your prayers. Paul states this explicitly in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He's just described all the hardship that he's been through. The trauma, the turmoil, being shipwrecked. And he writes this. He says, he delivered us, God delivered us from such deadly peril. And he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Do you see the connection that he makes? You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul sees the connection between his ministry and the prayers of his people and of the churches causing that to happen. Why was Paul effective? Because people effectively prayed for him. And quite simply, I haven't asked you to pray for me enough and for our church enough. There are some here that do so diligently. I know it. It's immensely encouraging and it's immensely effective. But as E.M. Bounds reflects on this, he says, one of the constitutional enforcements of the gospel is prayer, meaning one of the fundamental elements that makes the gospel effective is prayer. For without Prayer, the gospel, can neither be preached effectively, promulgated faithfully, experienced in the heart, nor be practiced in life. 
And for, for the, and for the very simple reason that by leaving prayer out of the catalog of religious duties, we leave God out, and his work cannot progress, and his work cannot progress without him. Pray for me, because I need your prayers. Let's examine now the two what's to pray for that Paul identifies in Romans chapter 15. He asks prayer for the messenger of the gospel to be preserved. Paul prays specifically. He says, I appeal to you that you would pray to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Jerusalem. He is praying for safety. Now, why is he praying for this? Well, it's because this. Paul has just told them that he is, wants to visit them in Rome. He wants to visit them so that they can send him on his way to Spain. Instead, he says, but before I do so, I need to go down to Jerusalem and give this love offering that the churches in Asia, Asia Minor have given, and I need to give it to those who are in need of the church in Jerusalem. And so I need to go down there first, and then I'm going to go back up and hopefully visit you. But Paul knew that as he goes to Jerusalem that many unconverted Jews saw Paul as a traitor as one who was destroying their religion, who was destroying their way of life, who was destroying Judaism, who was a blasphemer, and who should be stoned. And he knew that he was going to meet people who would be violently opposed to him. And Paul has good reason to believe this. On his first trip to Jerusalem, after debating with several of the, of the Jews there, Acts chapter 9 tells us this, but they were seeking to kill him, very succinctly. What was happening is that they were wishing to do violence against him. A couple chapters later, Paul tells another example where he comes across unbelievers from Judea in that region. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Why did they stop stoning him? Because he was dead. He was lifeless. He was limp. Why throw another stone? He's already dead. Reality was he wasn't. But they thought he was, and they thought that they had killed him. And in these other passages listed out here are seven other examples of violence being done against Paul by unbelievers. And so Paul is praying, protect me that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea so that I might come to you again. Paul is praying for safety, but he's not praying for safety for safety's sake because he is willingly putting himself at risk, but he is praying for safety for the advancement of the gospel, that the gospel and the mission might continue on. He is praying that the messenger of the gospel would be preserved so that the gospel would continue and go forth. While today, here and at least in America at this point in time, people aren't being violently threatened, at least the way that Paul was not, but it's not infrequent for gospel messengers and or their lives and or their ministries to be destroyed. And yes, there are some who do so intentionally and systematically. certainly see this around the globe. Yet in our own country, you see some places where this is going on, where there are pastors and churches who are seeking to lovingly and graciously and winsomely teach the gospel and areas of governmental activism are seeking to destroy that. There are some places in our country right now, and many places in our country, when the one who is seeking to destroy the faithful preaching and teaching of the gospel is not the government, but it's the church itself and the church hierarchy. In some places, it's the congregation itself that is seeking to destroy the faithful preaching of the gospel minister. I grew up at a church inside the D.C. Beltway, 
And where we were as a church is that politics was not a concept to be studied or debated. Politics was just life. I mean, it is how life operated. And so what did that mean? Does that mean if there was something in the church that you didn't like, if there was something that the preacher said that you disagreed with, the D.C. political machine turned on with full force and regularly brought about the destruction of ministers. At other times, there are other pastors in their ministry who is destroyed through their own failures, their own struggles with sin, and their own, deal, and their own issues with temptation. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be going to General Assembly, which is our church's annual denominational meeting. It is a time where we do in important business, but it's also a time of encouragement and connecting with other ministers and hearing what God is doing around the country with other churches. But it's also a time that it's a very sobering reminders how much I need people to be praying for the messengers of the gospel to be preserved. You know, I heard this study when I came out of seminary that one in ten evangelical ministers will, re- will retire in Christian ministry. One out of ten. I didn't really believe it. Two years ago, there was a study from Duke University that came out, much more academically uh, rigorous study. And guess what they discovered? That one in ten ordained pastors in our country retire in ministry. And I don't just mean being pastors of the church. I mean ministry in general. One in ten of a 90% attrition rate of people who go into ordained ministry. And you know what? I see it now. And I see it when I go to General Assembly, as I will in two weeks. Because in the midst of encouragement, there will also be understanding like, oh, well, where's so-and-so? And we'll hear stories of pastors who've done wrong and who've gone wrong. We'll hear of friends and friends' wives who have had affairs of churches that, of vibrant churches, churches like the size of ours, that within three months went from being healthy to utterly collapsing. Other people of friends in our cohort who are no longer in ministry as their families have been destroyed. For some, that's through a spouse who came down with severe mental illness and wreaked havoc in their marriage, in their kids, and in their congregations. And I think back to my time in seminary, and if you ask myself and other of my classmates who would be some of the, their, their, the speakers that were brought into the school, who most impacted them. And there are, you know, one of the great things about being in seminary is you get all kinds of speakers from all across the country, from different denominations and different churches coming in and lecturing. And I'd probably say that there, I could probably, myself and a couple others, we'd probably each come up with probably about the same list of about 10 speakers who came in who really impacted me significantly, um, who really were just doing fantastic gospel-driven ministry. And of those 10 speakers, I know eight of them are no longer in ministry at all. I know two of those churches that no longer exist. Churches our size are larger that do not exist anymore. And it is true and real that there is a spiritual battle that is going on, and the people of God need to be praying for the messengers of the gospel to be preserved. For me, in my own life, you know, it is, yes, it is a spiritual battle that I'm keenly aware of. It is also a spiritual battle that at times, quite frankly, is crushing. There was a period a couple years ago where within a six-month window, 
um, several things just came together. It was a time when I had, within six months, I had come down with viral meningitis. I had had a sustained fever of 103.7 for 72 hours despite being on medication continuously. My meningitis converted to viral encephalitis, which is meningitis is an infection of the blood-brain barrier. Encephalitis is it crosses the blood-brain barrier and infects the brain. Also in that same window, I was being treated for a genetic autoimmune disease, also was being on treatment for continuing issues with the blindness that I've had, and now I'm in my left eye and the struggles with that. And also in that window, I had, within that same six-month window, had come down with a, because of the treatment, um, I came down with a case of pink eye, but the result of it is because of my other treatments, I didn't have any immune response, and both of my eyes swelled shut for over 10 days. And during that same period, there were personal things going on in my own life and family's life. There were pastoral situations in our church with people that we love dearly. There were spiritual struggles that were going on that were more intense than any of those physical battles at that time. And I say that because I am aware, I am not looking, I am not eager to move back into that season of ministry, but I am keenly aware that it will probably come again because the New Testament says that it will and that it will particularly for those who are messengers of the gospel. And so through those things and through those experiences, it is why Paul and why I ask you that you would pray for me and pray for the messengers of the gospel to be preserved. And Paul, keenly aware of that physical battle, praying for it for himself. The second what that Paul asked for prayer for in this passage is he asked for prayer for his ministry to be received. He says, I pray that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Paul's focus is on his service being acceptable to the people who are there, that his ministry would be received, that his desire is to go with this offering from the, all these other churches, that he would go there and that his offering would be, would be received, that it would supply the needs of those who are hurting. And then as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, that this offering from the churches would, would result in the overflowing and many expressions of thanks to God from the church in Jerusalem because of what God did in the other churches. But Paul is a realist, and he knows that in going to Jerusalem, that he doesn't expect people to understand who he is or what he has done. He doesn't expect that people will like him or even be receptive to him. He doesn't expect that people will want him around because he is a lightning rod figure. And Paul knows the reality that regardless of the intentions of the minister and the purity of doing so, there are pastors and preachers who will connect with some and not with others, who will be received by some and not received by others. That's just the basic reality of human personality. But there are bigger struggles going on as well. As D.A. Carson writes, reflecting on this, he says, at the same time, there are many in our generation who attend church to find peace and happiness, not pardon and holiness. They want to be fulfilled and not to discover how Christ is the fulfillment of earlier revelation. They prefer entertainment to worship, oratory to truth, and programs to piety. It is an enormous tragedy when there are too few faithful, anointed, visionary leaders. And it is a terrible indictment on the church when those the Lord sends are treated like dirt. And these things happen and frequently. 
but perhaps they would not happen so often. If more of us prayed that God would make the ministry of his most faithful and spiritually minded leaders widely acceptable among the saints. It's an urgent prayer to pray for the ministry of the gospel to be received. Well, what happens when we do this? How do these, those are our two what's, pray for the preservation of the messenger, pray for the ministry to be, the message to be received. But how should we expect this type of, what should we expect this prayer to look like? One is that we should expect to pray to the God of the universe and expect the God of the universe to answer. Paul's prayer request was this. He says, I want you to pray for me that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that's one. Two, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that's two. Why? So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. That's what Paul wants to see happen. That's what he's asking for them to pray for. Well, how do these prayer requests go for the Apostle Paul? Well, the second request was answered. His ministry was received in Jerusalem. The third request um, about going to, to see them occurred, but not the way that Paul wanted. In his first request, God just simply said no to. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, which was instigated by unbelievers who were wanting to do him harm. Paul never got to Spain. He went to Rome as a prisoner, not for refreshment. And after two years of incarceration and being heard by a corrupt court, Paul appealed to Caesar and was shipped to Rome. On his way in being shipped to Rome, he was shipwrecked along the way, which, oh, by the way, was the fourth time that he was shipwrecked in a drifted sea. And those were the answers to Paul's prayers. Personally, I find it reassuring that Paul's prayers were not answered as he liked. Because that's our experience as well, is it not? That there are other times that the Apostle Paul prayed, for example, about the thorn in his flesh. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but God answered him and said, my grace is enough for you. That God's answer was to give him more grace. And Paul came to accept that answer as good and wise and could even see God using it in his life, but that certainly was not what Paul prayed for. Is that we are praying And as we pray, we should expect the God of the universe to answer because he is God. Now consider the opposite of that experience of our prayers prayers getting answered the way we wanted them every time we wanted them to answer. Imagine if what that happened. Imagine that every time you prayed, that immediately you received whatever you prayed for as you said it in some magic incantation like in Jesus' name. Kabam! It happens. how, How would we view prayer? How would we view our relationship with God? Wouldn't prayer just become like the genie in the lamp that just gets rubbed by saying, in Jesus' name? Wouldn't God all of a sudden become reduced down to the the cosmic version of Amazon.prime? I'm sorry, Amazon.com, you know, Amazon Prime. Wouldn't God just become the cosmic version of that? Maybe with drone delivery (laughs) for my prayer requests? God, give me the ideal spouse today in Jesus' name. Kapow! Got a hundred more missionaries fully funded today. Kaboom, a new car, a win in our soccer game. In Jesus' name, and I hope I prayed it before the guy on the other team prayed it today. Kapow! (laughs) I mean, what an imaginary religion, right? What an imaginary God. And that's not a relationship. That's, That's not a relationship with a living person. That's superstition. That's not God, thy will be done, but it is God, make my will be done. 
That is not prayer that is communion with the all-wise, loving, gracious, heavenly Father who is working out all things from his eternal, his eternal and cosmic plan. So God, in his wisdom and love as our heavenly Father, sometimes says, yes, absolutely, I've been waiting for you to ask. And sometimes he says, no, absolutely not. What were you thinking? And sometimes he says, not yet. And other times he says, ask again. You know, Elisha, the prophet, was praying in God's will for God's plan, and he had to pray seven times for the drought to be ended against King Ahab. And he was praying specifically God's will, and other times God says to us, no, you need to ask differently. Why? Because he is a loving and gracious Heavenly Father, and when we pray, we should expect to be praying to the God of the universe and expect him to answer. The other thing that we should expect while we are praying is that we should expect to struggle with the God of the universe. Paul characterizes his prayer life this way. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. To strive together. Other times he says that you would contend with me on my behalf. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul says, He's commending Epaphras to the church in Colossae. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So too the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 says, For I want you to know, referring to his prayer life, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That is, I'm praying for all of those who I have not yet met. And I want you to know the struggle of my prayers for them. Paul is not saying, yeah, the discipline of praying is struggling. Paul is saying, my prayer itself is a time of struggling and wrestling with God. My prayer itself is a time of contending before God for his will to be done, for his kingdom to advance, for the gospel to go forth. And I am contending and struggling with God and yearning to God and praying on his behalf and that we should expect our prayers to be a struggle. Not a bad struggle, but a good struggle. A struggle that renews us in God's mission. A struggle that accomplishes God's purposes. But a struggle that God calls us to for the advancement of the gospel and for the advancement of his will. That Paul saw and understood that prayer was a part of the Christian struggle and that prayer itself was a place of struggle. And this makes sense to us because our goal in this world is not to intellectually convince, not to intellectually convince people of Christianity, though Christianity is intellectually credible. Our goal is not to emotionally persuade people that they need to become followers of Jesus Christ, though our emotions and all of who we are get transformed through a relationship with him. But our goal is to win people to Jesus Christ, and there is a new birth that is necessary. There are hearts of stone to be turned into hearts of flesh. As Scripture says, that those who are in darkness would see light, that those who do not see might see that those who are trusting in themselves would turn and trust in God, and we as humans are completely and utterly powerless to cause this to occur. And God calls us and he puts us in a position of powerlessness, namely prayer, 
He puts us in a position of powerlessness so that we would call out earnestly and struggle with the God of all power whose spirit is at work to bring about his will, that we would use the weapon that God has given to us of urgent and earnest and persistent prayer and struggle to God on behalf of God's kingdom to come. And by doing so, God makes his kingdom come. And by doing so, God advances the gospel ministry. And he preserves his messengers, and he propagates the message. And so quite simply, what I am asking for you is that I am asking that you would struggle on my behalf. I am asking that you would struggle on behalf of our church, on behalf of our staff, on behalf of our elders and our deacons and our ministry leaders, that you would struggle on our behalf and on behalf of the messengers of the gospel and the ministries that you yourself have been connected with and have been connected with in your life and you have been impacted by. I am asking that you would join in what Paul has called every church that he impacted to do, that you would join in the struggle on our behalf. Will you pray for us? For we are hopeless without it. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before you. And we are doing this powerless, seemingly powerless thing. To come before you who is our Lord, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would hear our prayers. Father, we ask on behalf of of the advancement of the gospel. For, Lord, we know that we are powerless to turn to you, to trust you, to worship you, to live for you. Or we're powerless to do that in our own lives, let alone bring that about in anyone else's. Lord, you are our hope. Lord, you are the source of life and light, and there is none apart from you. And Lord, we pray and beseech you, Father, that you would send your spirit into this community and draw people unto yourself. Father, we pray that you would preserve the messengers of the gospel here at Cornerstone, here at churches in our community that preach the gospel for Mark Dooley at Leonardtown Baptist and Adam Polk at Redeeming Grace and for Larry Crabtree at Sasif, and for Matt Hall, and for Stephen Coy, and for Lanny Clark, and for Mike Jones, and for all others here in this community who believe in your word, who are upholding its truth. Lord, we ask that you would preserve them. Father, we pray for the advancement of the gospel ministry, that the message of the gospel and its ministry would be received in this community. Father, we pray that it would be received in this place. And Lord, we just come before you because you are our hope. And you are our only hope in life and death. And Lord, you are our only hope for the redemption of this community. And Father, there are some of us here who we feel like prayer is not particularly effective. Lord, there are some of us here who have been urgently and earnestly praying for our country for years and for decades. And it seems like our prayers are causing the opposite to happen. Maybe not causing them, but the opposite is happening. 
Yet, Father, you call us by your word. And so, Father, we choose to believe not what we see, but we choose to believe your word, the same word that gives us life through Jesus Christ. We choose to believe your word that tells us that it is through the prayers of your people that your kingdom comes. And so, Lord, we ask that you would hear our prayers and that you would move us to pray that the gospel might go forth and that your name would be praised on the lips of these people. In the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.